Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 262. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to review and discuss the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Going to dedicate the next couple of weeks to talk about the Narnia trilogy. Yes, we picked this because in most circles it is considered a Christmas film, but I cannot believe it has taken 260 plus episodes to get here to review this. Because... This is a huge movie. I mean, they dedicated an episode of prop culture to it, but do you remember what a big deal this was when it was announced that Disney was doing this adaptation? I do, um, and I remember not having any interest in seeing it, and I'll tell you why. The movie comes out in 2005, all right? 18 years old, not going to see Disney flicks. Especially not one that's based on a book that I read when I was 10 years old. Because The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, at least for us, was like required classroom reading. It was one of those things that the, like, when you would sit in class and the whole class would read the same book, this was, this was one that we had to read. I enjoyed the book. But I think when this movie came out, I was sort of just aged out of it. I remember the mania... But having no interest in seeing it, did not watch it until this week. See, that's interesting. I can't recall if it was required reading. I think it might have been on like a summer reading list, which is really funny because now a lot of schools have banned this book. Some say it's because of the mysticism. Some say it's because of the fighting. I think it's because of the parallels to Christianity. And now they're not promoting it in schools but I do remember it always being a big title at one point it was the most carried book in every library yeah. it was so easily accessible and I rem what I remember most is that um my mom had always talked about it as like this classic and when I did eventually read it and again I can't remember if it was for school or just because I had picked it up she was so excited that I had discovered it. And she was like, oh my God, you're watching The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So I think I always sort of had the story up on this pedestal. Um, and as far as the movies go, my history with it, um, the animated one yeah. was always more my jam. I remember watching that because my brother loved it around Christmas time. So that was always in regular rotation around the holiday. Um, and I did see this when it came out, I believe I went to see it in theaters because my friend was obsessed with J James McAvoy. Um, so I had seen it pretty early on. I don't go back and rewatch it that much. My latest iteration with it was with prop culture. Right. Um, that was my most recent revisit to Narnia. And there's really no rhyme or reason for it because it's not that I didn't like this when I saw it. It's just not one that I've gone back for a lot. And I'm wondering if that's a personal thing or if this is a Disney community thing as a whole, because I do feel like this one has sort of gotten lost to time a little bit, which is wild to me because I remember the mania of this movie and it went far beyond 
this was Disney's response to, oh my God, we passed on Harry Potter. Now Universal has it. What do we do? Because this is coming out a couple of years after Harry Potter. It's two years on the heels of Pirates of the Caribbean. So Disney's doing fine at this point. It's not like they needed another blockbuster banger, but they had it. And people were really hyped to see what Disney was going to do with this source material. Well, is this film justifiably lost to time? Was it worth all of the hype and the mania? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections. After an air raid on London, the Pevensey children, Lucy, Peter, Susan, and Edmund, are sent to live with Professor Kirk in the country while their mother stays behind. Upon their arrival at the massive home, the housekeeper, Mrs. McCready, hits them with strict rules, so the kids decide to play hide-and-seek to pass the time. Lucy finds a wardrobe, and when she goes to hide inside, she is transported to the snowy world of Narnia, where she meets Mr. Tumnus, a fawn, under a lamppost. They go back to his home for tea, where we learn that Narnia hasn't been... Uh, or hasn't seen a Christmas in a hundred years, and the winter has become endless. While uh, playing a lullaby flute, Lucy falls asleep and awakens to learn that the White Witch has cursed Narnia and says that any human who enters should be turned into her. But instead, Tumnus helps Lucy get back to the wardrobe and return home to see that almost no time has passed at all. She tells her siblings of the magic of the wardrobe. However, upon inspection, they find no pathway to Narnia and assume that this is all made up. That night, Lucy returns to the wardrobe, secretly followed by Edmund, who enters the world of Narnia behind her. He meets the White Witch, who claims to be the Queen, and is very welcoming to Edmund. She shows him an interest as a potential king and tells him to bring the rest of his family with him. The witch leaves. Edmund reunites with Lucy, who tells him that the witch is not the queen, but he makes no mention of meeting her. When they return home, Edmund tells Peter all of this was made up, further upsetting Lucy, who runs into the arms of a very kind Professor Kirk. Peter and Susan tell Professor Kirk of the world that Lucy believes to have found, which excites the professor who tells the elder siblings to believe in their sister. The next day, while playing cricket, the kids break a window and run inside to hide from Mrs. McCready. They hide in the wardrobe and enter Narnia. Lucy takes them to meet Mr. Tumnus. However, they arrive to see that his home has been ransacked and that he is missing after being arrested for treason. Edmund hides that he aided in Tumnus's arrest, as well as his allegiance to the witch. They meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, a kind couple who tell the kids of Aslan, the real king of Narnia, who is awaiting for the kids as told by the prophecy as two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve would defeat the witch to save Narnia. Edmund, meanwhile, secretly leaves to go to the witch, and Mr. Beaver tells the others that... Edmund is bait to lure them in to be killed by the witch, and that only Aslan can help them now. 
Edmund marvels at all of the statues by the Queen's palace and is found by wolves who return him to the Queen who is angered to see that he is alone and sends her wolves to retrieve the siblings. They destroy the beavers' homes, sending them all running into the woods, where we learn that the statues are really those who crossed the witch. While imprisoned, Edmund meets Mr. Tumnus, who is turned to stone by the witch after revealing that Edmund helped him turn, or, or after it, it is revealed that Edmund helped turn him in. The beavers and the remaining Pevensey kids are then introduced to Father Christmas, who finds them in the woods. He then gives them gifts, a dagger, an all-healing cordial for Lucy, a magical horn and bows and arrows for Susan, and a sword and shield for Peter. He tells us that the witch's magic is weakening, and these tools will help them defend themselves. As winter slowly ends, the ice that they've been traveling on begins to melt. The wolves attack, but are swept away as the waterfall Thaws. The children and the beavers make it to land safely and are eventually brought to Aslan, a king of Narnia, the true king of Narnia, who is also a lion. Aslan learns of Edmund's betrayal and tells Peter that he shall sit on the throne as the high king, which Peter is hesitant to believe. When the wolves arrive at Aslan's camp, Peter fights them off and is knighted by Aslan after killing Mogram, who is the head wolf that the White Witch sends. They follow the remaining wolves to the witch's camp where they destroy her troops before rescuing Edmund. The witch arrives at Aslan's camp and demands the children. However, he refuses to release them to be killed on the stone table and works out a promise in exchange for their safety. That night, Aslan goes to the witch's camp where he is bound, shaved, and killed on the stone table, but not before the witch tells him that she plans to kill Edmund anyway all while Lucy and Susan watch. The witch tells her general to prepare the troops for battle as they plan to take Narnia forever. The next day, the war rages on while Aslan is revived thanks to Lucy's magical cordial. Aslan tells them that the stone table has cracked as there has been no actual traitor killed upon it, as said by the prophecy. Lucy, Susan, and Aslan free the stone prisoners while Peter leads the battle against the witch and her troops. Peter tells Edmund to retreat as it has become too dangerous. However, he does not listen and is gravely wounded by the queen who battles Peter before she is killed by Aslan. Lucy uses the cordial to save Edmund as Aslan and the Pevensies take back Narnia. They are crowned King Peter the Magnificent, Queen Susan the Gentle, King Edmund the Just and Queen Lucy the Valiant. Fifteen years later, they are still in Narnia, and they discover the lamppost. Knowing that they've seen it before, they cross through the wardrobe where they are again children, seeing that very little time has actually changed in reality, and when Professor Kirk asks them where they've been, they say that the story is too incredible to understand, to which he responds, try me. So before we jump into the review, I want to talk a little bit about the book history because that plays a lot into the setup here. Mm -hmm. uh, so the book was written by C.S. Lewis in the 1950s, obviously taking place during World War II. So written not long after the time period in which this has taken place. Right. And um, part of the inspiration for the story was that... Um, in world or during World War II, children were being 
taken out of London, which was being bombed, to more rural areas to protect them. And C.S. Lewis did have three young girls stay with him. And that's sort of what gave him the inspiration for the story. So true as it is, I was very surprised with how dark Disney went for this opening. I mean, you are showing civilian homes being bombed. I mean, they go for it. They really do. They really go for it in the air raid. Um, I, I have to be honest with you. I read this book once. 27 years ago I don't remember it being this dark now maybe I'm just not remembering the book properly although my understanding is that of the three films this one is the most true to the book and in fact it's well regarded uh, well regarded as one of the closest and most loyal adaptations ever put to film so maybe it was just how I envisioned it as a kid but I didn't envision it the way that they showed it I was actually impressed with how much they went for it same to show how much time has passed since i've read it or watched the animation i forgot that this was how the children even came to the house and came to the wardrobe that this was the reason behind it um i don't think that they put this in the animation it wouldn't surprise me if that part was omit but probably um, i completely forgot how deep it really gets especially and it is important for them to focus on this because this is a big character moment for Edmund here where he goes back for the dad's picture because the dad is off fighting in this war and he doesn't want to lose probably the one photo that they've got of him um so the irony here is that this is the only time really that Edmund is not acting in his own self-interest by going to get this picture of their father so that they all have it. And Peter yells at him for being selfish. So this is a great jumping off point for all of the bad things that Edmund is going to do. And I think that this is one of the best scenes in the film. The the bombing itself and then the evacuation because the kids, the child actors, and we're going to talk about the cast in a little while, they absolutely knock it out of the park. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you bring this up because there are other stories like this, particularly in fantasy, if you compare it to something like Harry Potter. We know that Harry is being abused by the Dursleys and they're treating him horribly. And it's not to say that Daniel Radcliffe didn't do a good job with it in the movies, but Hagrid comes in early and he whisks them he whisks him away. And you don't really see like how deeply he's affected by it. These kids break your heart. Lucy in particular. Um, we're going to talk about the cast later, but I mean, she carries this film on her back. And I mean, even though this is based on a book, which is based off of history, or at least the first part is, this setup is just so heavy for a fantasy but I think that is one of the things that this film does really well striking that balance between the heavy emotional tax that it's taking on this children and those moments of lightheartedness in Narnia because Narnia isn't just an escape for them because things aren't perfect there either they're going from one war to another yeah um so I think that you it, it was 
a very difficult task trying to find that balance of lightheartedness in all of this really heavy stuff. I like the set that is the mansion that is Professor Kirk's home. That was very much the way I envisioned it as a kid. And I think that that they absolutely knocked out of the park. Same. I love this hide and seek sequence. Um, The tone shift is great. Again, going back and forth from the heavy material to something a little bit more fun. It was a really good choice for music to have the kids running around. And it's some great editing. I love the close-ups of the feet running up and down the stairs and all of the doors and curtains opening and closing while they're finding places to hide. Um, I just think this is a really fun scene. Um, And I absolutely love the wardrobe reveal. Um, I love that shot, how it's a low angle and they sort of slow it down as they remove the sheet from the wardrobe and you just know that it's something special. I love the initial look into Narnia. Same. I think that the set is incredibly impressive. We know that a lot of that is CGI, a lot of it is green screen, but there's just as much that looks practical because I think they did build a practical set. And to to hit on something we have talked about at nauseum on this show, if they made this film today, there wouldn't be one practical thing about this. It would all be shot on a soundstage with green screen and it would look like absolute trash. It would be like Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Yes, because Disney does not know how to do CGI. And and that will be on display later on in this film. Yes, but that is an industry-wide problem with the amount of CGI and these visual effects houses trying to keep up with it. That's, yeah, but Disney, that's become a big, big problem. That's become a problem now. What's the excuse 18 years ago? Disney has historically had horrific, putrid CGI. Well... I hate to disappoint you, but of this trilogy... This is the best one, This is the best one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure is. Part of the other reason that this looks so great is because I believe that this was the first time Georgie Henley, who plays Lucy, saw the set of Narnia. If I'm not mistaken, they held the kids from blocking out these scenes. I mean, they they rehearsed it, but they didn't do it on the actual set so that you get this magical reveal and they really are seeing it for the first time and you capture that wonder and awe. Um, I would have loved to fact check that by going back and watching prop culture, but that's not really an option, is it? Because they no, pulled it from Disney Plus at the time of this recording, put it back Disney Plus. But anyway, I believe that that's how they handled this scene so that you did get the natural reaction because as good as the actress is, I don't think that this could be faked. I mean, it's like seeing Cinderella's castle for the first time. You can't fake that. Yeah. Uh, something that, that they did fake and, and not terribly well, as good as his performance was the nose on James McAvoy. That's that nose is rough in close-ups. It's rough. Oh, dare you? That's intentional. They won an Oscar for best makeup. It was a weak year. What did they go up against? That's a in close-ups. 
you can see the seams. It looks, I think it looks really no, bad. No, they're slits. It's supposed to look like a slit, like a dog's nose. That, I don't get a dog's nose at all. Well, and, I mean, he's a fawn, so it's going to read more deer. But, but I don't get a deer either. No, but look, I'm serious. Look at Walt's nose right now. On the side, there are those slits where like the top flaps aren't like fully attached. No, That's I, what that, that I know is. What a, I know what an animal's nose looks like. This doesn't look like an animal's nose. I beg to differ. I think they were absolutely deserving of their award here because James McAvoy's makeup is one of the best things about this film. I think it's absolutely incredible. I think they knocked it out of the park. And it's not just the the face. I love how they added the hair on the body. I love how they were able to blend that into a practical suit for the legs. And I mean, some of it is CGI, um, but I think as far as that goes, the Tumnus character has the most seamless blending of the practical and CGI. Um, and I just love the relationship and the bond that is formed here out of the shoot. I mean, this is one of the most memorable things from the book for me. Um, and I think that they just did such a great job with this scene because Mr. Tumnus is absolutely enchanting. Um, even though you know what he's about to do and that he is going to turn Lucy in, James McAvoy has this way in his performance of making the audience feel bad that you would even think that he's going to do what he's about to do. Yeah. It's a brilliant performance, both cast and crew here. Yeah. I mean, you don't, we know what's going to happen, but he plays it off as if, well, I mean, he had no choice realistically. And I think that's why he then does what he can to get her out of there. But there is a moment where you can't tell whether he's an anti-hero or a villain. Yeah. And it's his performance. I mean, he's great in everything. He sells it. It's really, really well done. Um, Lucy goes back after he does not turn her in. And you have the scene where, you know, her siblings don't believe her. Um, later that night, she sneaks off and Edmund now has followed her. And this is where you start to see the Edmund character be fleshed out in a way that I don't remember him being this dislikable, but it may just be because I haven't read the book in almost 30 years. I don't recall any of that either. Um, because from here on out, I'm going to find very little reason to root for him. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's dislikable in all of the right ways i think and i think that the performance is very good and i understand why he is so enchanted by the white witch and she really plays on his emotion and she plays on his weaknesses and i think tilda swinton from the moment she <sighs> comes from the moment she comes on screen she slays she's so good in this movie it's ridiculous um and I like the relationship that they develop right away because we know that she's nothing but evil intent. And yet, at the same time, you you find a way to feel bad for him. You, you know that he's not a likable character from here on out, but you still sort of feel bad for him that he's getting... He's getting poached, really, is what's happening. Well, I think that's so remarkable, too, about the way this is written and the way that it's performed is that we know that... 
Edmund has just had his life turned upside down. You know, he's worried about his father in the war. He's taken from his home. They're separated from their mother. Um, so we know how vulnerable he is. But I think it's a credit to the writing that the White Witch picks up on that and she exploits it. Um, she's taking the cues more from the way that he's talking about his siblings, especially this jealousy of Peter. Yeah. But really... Edmund was an open but like he was prime for this because he's being traumatized right now as am I in this scene I mean it starts off with Ginnerbrick just yelling and chasing Edmund down the way that <laughs> this is performed is absolutely terrifying because it's it's just noises and yeah he's really creepy um which is so funny because that's a standout memory from prop culture when they reunited this actor with the sled how much he loved it and how fond of it he was and what if he teared up over it yeah so it was amazing to see that behind the scenes look of something that is truly unsettling in scene um and tilda swinton is the white witch i mean like i said we'll, we'll get into the cast later but to your point uh i hate to say it but she's incredible if you're a longtime listener of this show you know that she terrifies me not as this character, as a human being. So this might be perfect casting. Um, but I just think this scene, it ends on such a funny note because Edmund sings like a bird and he's yep. ready to sell out his entire family. And then he all doubles for, down. All for Turkish delight. All for Turkish delight. But that also goes into the fact that we know, you know, that's a luxury item. You're not going to be able to have access to that when there's a war on. So it's a very big deal. It might seem like something that's, so silly that he was lured into the van with candy but there is a deeper reason for that and it's because it's not something that he can have right now um but yeah then he's gonna go back in find his older siblings double down and not tell them the truth and make lucy look crazy yeah jerk uh, it, it, he does and 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 it's such a great moment when they all enter the wardrobe after breaking the window and immediately peter and susan are like you have to apologize to Lucy right now. It's a great scene for them. I also love how before they all go back in, we do get this quick beat where we meet the professor and how understanding that he is and how kind he is to them, even though he does kind of tough love Peter and Susan a little bit as the oldest. And, you know, he sets them straight about having a little bit more faith in their sister. Yeah, I what's what works about this is that Mrs. McCready has made him out to be this horrific person. Don't be bothered. He doesn't want to be seen. And he ends up being a, a much gentler, nicer character. And he knows what's going on in that wardrobe, Absolutely. which leads me to believe that he's been in the wardrobe before. Um, and I, I, I love him as a character. I love this moment. It's a great introduction for him. And I think you also need it too, because Lucy does represent faith in this film. So he's also trying to give the older siblings who at this point, they're, they have a much deeper understanding of what the war means and what is happening to their family than their youngest siblings. So I think he's also trying to instill in them to have a little faith that things will get better. Yeah. Um, and then it's completely undone in this next scene 
uh, where McCready is chasing them into the house, which is or through the house, which is ultimately going to chase them into the wardrobe. For as much as this film has handled well at this point, the Foley is out of control. And I don't think that that is coming from me just having a trained eye for things like this. It is out of sync and horrendous and so noticeably bad. Even I picked up on it. But I wondered if perhaps it was just the way that it was playing through the streamer. But then watching it a second time and it was still doing it. Yeah, I thought it the first time and then I was really zeroed in on it the second. The sound is right. I don't, it's not that I disbelieve the sound of the foot on the wood. I totally buy that. It's just, oh, there's four kids running here. Clop, clop, clop. Like they didn't bother to sync it to the individual pace of the running. Right. And for a film, aside from the CGI, that has such attention to detail otherwise, like, you know, prop culture, they spent a lot of time examining the, the I was about to say wardrobe, um, but I think that's going to be confusing. The costuming yeah. in this film and how they tattered the clothes and they put a hole in Edmund's um, sweater because, you know, he was running around and he tore it and we buy that from him. Um for such close detail otherwise, this is a big miss. It is. Something else. Let's get back into Narnia. Everything is revealed. Um, when you get to Tumnus's home, how ransacked and how destroyed it is. And I like his arrest warrant is just like staked on the wall for them to find. Obviously, it's done very intentionally. I totally believe all of that. I think it looks authentic. It doesn't look like a set that was ransacked to look ransacked. Because sometimes you could tell where like they do too much. Yeah. But in this case, it looks believable. It definitely does. And I love our introduction of the beavers here. I just wish they were practical. Why couldn't they have used the creature shop? Yeah. That's my big problem with the beavers. I love them as characters. There's no reason why Jim Henson's Creature Shop couldn't do those. Well, no, they did do some practical because we see them in prop culture. Remember, there was the guy from Long Island who had basically every single prop that you could acquire from this film. He had it, and the beavers were a part of that. So at one point, they are using... I don't know if they're animatronics or maybe these were stand-ins. I got the feeling they were stand-ins so that the actors had the sight lines. But I mean, you could do that with a cardboard cutout or like a, a stuffed animal or something. I think at some points they were using practical effects with the beavers. Because what the guy had in his collection was so detailed. And likewise with Aslan too. I think that they were switching them in and out. But when it stands out that it's CGI, it stands out very badly. Oh, yeah. And if you had them made, I don't know why you just didn't use them the whole time. Let's move on because... Repeating myself. Um, they they hid from those wolves because now the wolves are tracking them down. They just climbed a tree. They're hovering like eight feet over those wolves' heads. It was too easy. I know that the fox had them distracted. This was too easy. Yeah. 
I feel like they did a good job with it when they shot it from the low angle and you're looking up at the tree. But then when you get the POV of the children looking down on the fox, buying them time. Yeah, it looks like they're just barely above the ground. And I mean, I think that's also the difference is in one, you're doing CGI, you can stretch the tree, make it look longer. And the other, if they actually have these children up in a tree, you're going to try and do forced perspective. You're not going to, you know, have them dangling from a height. But what takes me out of it more than anything else is that stupid Edmund left and he didn't even take a coat. And now he's got to make it all the way to the White Witch's palace freezing. And he wonders why. Yeah. Now, the re- like, for the next 40 or 45 minutes of screen time, because by the way, I do think the runtime of this film is obnoxious. It, it could be tighter. Um, they do the Lord of the Rings thing. We're just going to walk. <laughs> oh, no. But Edmund, he goes off on his own. He goes to the witch. This is where he sees, even though he's been warned by Lucy that she's not really the queen. This is where, and it's it's great because he's admiring the statues, not knowing exactly what they are. It's such a wonderful reveal the moment that she snaps and has him captured and taken to be thrown in the cell next to Mr. Tumnus. So good. And what's leading up to this is you start to see that she's turned everything to stone. When the beavers discover their buddy, Mr. Badger. Yep. Um, it's really heartbreaking. Like, and, and now, you know, it, it's a good moment for the audience where you can easily identify who is telling the truth and who is not with these stone animals. But the way that they go about it, um, it's just pretty heartbreaking. And then to see Mr. Tumnus in the cell like that, it's even worse. The reveal when it is said that Edmund turned him in. Oof. It's it's so well done. By all parties involved, so well done. And then he gets turned to stone. It is so heartbreaking because... Edmund thinks he's being released. Obviously, we know that's not going to happen. When he gets turned to stone, it's such a great moment. It really... And, and I mean, they do that on purpose because we love the character so much. You can't really trust him in the beginning, but then he does do the right thing by Lucy. You fall in love with him the same way that Lucy does, and now you've taken our favorite character and... I like that they held it, though. I like that, yes, we see the cut to him turning to stone, but we didn't actually see it done because when we do finally see uh, the White Witch turn the fox to stone, it hits pretty hard to see it carried out. Now, as the kids are walking through the woods, they believe that they are now being tracked and chased by the White Witch because they see the sled. And they go to hide. And it is revealed that they are not being chased by the White Witch. They are instead being chased by Father Christmas. Santa! I know him! The CGI when he arrives is so brutal. And it's the lighting. They didn't light it properly at all. There was almost too much light on them as they were trying to hide underneath things, as they were ducking and diving. There's no shadow at all. It is so clear that they are on a soundstage and they just have a bright light on them. And this, the shame of it is, everything aesthetically after that in this scene 
is stunning because, well, it's what happens when you go practical. But the CGI, man, is it so bad? It really is. What's remarkable to me is how much I had forgotten from the book and from this movie. I forgot that this was even a thing. Like we said at the top of the show, we picked this because Narnia, snow, feels Christmassy. <laughs> I forgot and I, that and I said to you, Christmas is in it. I said to you, that's not a reason to do Narnia just because there's snow. Just like Frozen's not a Christmas movie. Let It Go is not a Christmas song. But that's what I'm saying. This is widely revered as a Christmas movie, and this is why. Well, this is why, and I had no recollection either Neither that this happened. I. Neither did I. I have no recollection that Santa Claus is in this movie. Well, we picked a good one. Then, he looks incredible. He his does. His costume and his makeup are insane. And the bag is great, too. I mean, I would say that's up there with Tim Allen's bag in the Santa Claus. Yeah, and the props, the gifts that he gives, the gifts that he gives the kids, especially the sword and the shield. I mean, we know from seeing these props on prop culture, but seeing them on screen and how they get used, the the, the craftsmanship, because, you know, to your point, we can't go back and rewatch something that was never supposed to get pulled from Disney+. Plus. Um to revisit it here, you forget how stunning and how good the craftsmanship really was. Which is smash cut up against more bad CGI. Uh, this yes. river crossing. Yes. The pacing is great because you've just had that little bit of a breather thinking that you're being hunted down by the White Witch. Turns out it's Santa. Okay, we can breathe for a moment. And then the wolves show up again. Um, I really like the tension here because it's not just the threat of the wolves and being captured. Now the ice is starting to melt and they have to get to the other side of this river, which I don't know why they didn't just go over the top, but guess that would be too easy. Well, the top is breaking too. Eventually the entire waterfall thaws. I think it happens a little bit too quickly that all of a sudden, boom, it's spring and the water's moving, but that's not even, I'll suspend my disbelief for that. What's really bad for me is that once they land and Peter gets them to safety, they can't find Lucy right away. Their sight lines are so off. I don't know where they think they're looking for her. Up on a mountain, down in the ground, certainly not at the river. And within six seconds, hi, I'm here. You would have seen her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Aslan. Let's talk about his camp. That's another incredible set. More great sets. More great costumes. More outstanding makeup. Um, I I love the introduction to this character. And that... I don't want to say he was hiding in plain sight. But it's kind of hard to believe that no one really knew where he was. Because he also wasn't really hiding. You know what I'm saying? He's got this big encampment with all the big bright colors... Kind of easy to find, I think. But it doesn't change the fact that I think the set looks awesome. And it's also really impressive how we've had a few mentions of Aslan at this point. But not a lot where they've really built up a reputation that precedes him. But the way that they shot this and the reveal of Aslan, it really does. It, it's like seeing that lamppost for the first time or seeing the wardrobe. Like, it it just makes you feel like it's something special with very little build. 
Yeah, it's it not. They didn't do the Wizard of Oz thing, right? Where it's constant reminder that this is who we're going to seek. Now, the 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 beauty of it in the Wizard of Oz is that he's a total fraud. Right. So it's it's meant to build him up to show you that he's not really the great and powerful. So in this case, Aslan up until this point is almost a secondary character. Right. So yeah, I think that the reveal uh, was really good, and I think how stoic he is from the minute he comes on the screen, especially in that first interaction with the white witch where they go into that tent alone um, and they come out and, and he sends her away and the kids are going to be saved. And she says to him, you better not break your promise or whatever it is she says in paraphrasing. Um, we know that something suspicious has happened. So again, you're kind of towing the line of, even though, like, let's pretend for a second that we didn't all read this book as kids and that we don't all know what's going to happen. They do a good job of setting up the who do we trust, who do we not trust, who's being honest, and who's going to double-cross us. Right. And I thought they did a really nice job of that here. And that gets us to the witch's camp, which to me is equally as impressive as Aslan's and the stone table. And how brutal it is as they are just torturing and beating and pummeling Aslan as he makes his way to the table. And they shave him. His death scene is brutal in all of the right ways. It's hard enough accepting that he is making this sacrifice in Edmund's place, but the humiliation of it all is just awful. And this is where, I mean you do obviously get the big parallel if you believe in Christianity to the story of Jesus, where Edmund was the betrayal and now he's Aslan is going to sacrifice himself. Correct. Because as, as those who believe in the faith and are a part of the faith, you know that they made Jesus Christ carry his own crucifix. Yes. And he was stoned uh, and he was beaten as he had to carry this 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 very heavy crucifix and he was obviously was not tied to it the way the others were he was nailed to it so that in conjunction with two sons of adam two daughters of eve it's insane to me because i live in reality that this story that this book for you know people love to sit there and and trash people that are banning books in school. They're the same ones that'll ban the lion, the witch and the wardrobe because of its parallels to Christianity. We're either banning all books or we're not banning any books. You can't ban some and not the others. That's I, I live in universal compromise folks. Sorry. That's just how I choose to live my life. The fact that this is now considered a banned book and a banned story. Not only would Disney not make this film today, Mm. I don't think they would even be allowed to buy the rights if they weren't going to stick to the source material because I can guarantee you that entire dialogue would be gone. I think that entire thing, although what Bob Iger said this week, maybe not, I don't know. I can't keep track anymore. I, but I firmly believe that they would never have been a allowed to acquire the rights to this book. I don't think that they would have even wanted to entertain it because now it's controversial. But they're they're not saying it. They're not saying that 
this is why it's banned because of the parallels to religion. They're well, saying we know that's why. Because, yes, but that's what I'm saying. They're covering it with, oh well, it's it's too fantastical and the the battles are too violent. And but yeah, but Harry Potter does the same thing. Oh my gosh, I think if Harry Potter is far more violent. And those don't get banned. The yeah, wor- <laughs> wizards are fine. Yeah, the world's a very convenient place. Let's move on. Um, let's talk about the brutality. Let's talk about the war scene. Again, I was so impressed that Disney went for it. And I think sometimes I forget that coming off the hill heels of Pirates of the Caribbean, Pirates of the Caribbean, at least the first film, it's whimsical when it should be, but that's also very dark and gritty as well, especially when you get into the ghost story of it all. So this did come at a time where Disney wasn't afraid to show violence. They weren't afraid to show it being dark and gritty. They do a really good job of it here. I love it, and I am here for it. Yeah, I mean, there's not a ton of gore. It's not like they're showing a bloody battle, but there's a lot of hits and body checks for sure. Um, I do feel that the battle drags a little bit because I think that's the other thing. Not only were they not afraid to go for it, they wanted to showcase it. They wanted it to be, I think, a little bit dark and gritty. Um, but you do have a good pacing because when it does feel like it starts to drag, it cuts against um, Lucy and Susan trying to make their way back um, after Aslan passes. The only thing that I bump on is that Lucy has the drops and that's her first instinct is that she wants to use them on Aslan and Susan says, no, it's too late. It's too late. I wish she would have because Lucy is supposed to represent faith and she has always believed in Narnia. She not only just as a place, she believed it when none of her siblings did. Right. That it existed beyond the wardrobe. She believed in Mr. Tumnus when he double crossed her. She believed, um, you know, in, in finding Aslan. So, because she's been that driving force the entire time, like I feel like this is part of her character arc is where she needs to believe this is when it's most important to stick to your guns and test your faith. And I wish that she had given him the drops in spite of Susan telling her not to. I agree. What it does set up though, is that moment where she sees Mr. Tumnus in stone. Oh, why? Why? It's hard enough for us to see. Like, we didn't need to watch Lucy go through this. Yes, we did. Oh, yes, we did. It's awful. Because she delivered. She did. She's incredible. So now Aslan is revived. We're starting to revive the stone beings. They're coming back to life, however you want to say it. When he breathes on them. Correct. He, yeah, he went to the White Witch's palace because I think that's where like his best guys are. And yeah. that was the first thing he did before going to help Peter. So in the meantime, the White Witch has nearly killed Edmund. Peter is fighting her off as best as he can. And here come the backups. Here come the best men. And here come Aslan, or here comes Aslan, I should say, who literally mauls the White Witch to death. <laughs> but that we don't see any of. We just see 
her look of horror as Aslan's jumping on her, we see the last thing that she sees and then big old cutaway. I would have liked to see like a swipe. But as far as I'm concerned, Edmund got what was coming to him. So that's fine. Yeah. So she uses, this is Lucy uses her magical cordial to heal Edmund. Maybe against better judgment. I love the scene of them on their thrones. The Me four too. of them sitting on their throne. The whole, oh man, the, the beavers grandeur, oh, holding yeah. the uh, holding the crowns. Tumnus placing them on. Yeah, it's, so good. It's a really great scene, and I like um, every um, title that Aslan is bestowing. I yes. think that it's it's very fitting of each character. And when we see them as adults, you think for a second, how long have they been in there? Like, they have to go home to their mother at some point. I love that they've sort of forgotten. Everybody but Lucy, of course, has sort of forgotten the lamp post because they, they're very surprised to see it. And when they go back through the wardrobe and we back in that moment where like almost no time has passed and Professor Kirk is standing there just waiting for them. Like, I, I just love this whole suspended reality when it comes to real time. I do, too. I forget if this is exactly how the book ends. I forget how close it is to the source material. But regardless, I like the time jump. I like that we see them as adults. I like that we see them staying in Narnia and making sure that everything is taken care of, especially because Aslan walks away. Yeah. Um, so someone has to do it. And I like that there's also a payoff but, uh, with these kids having been traumatized. Yeah. And I, I hit on it before where it's like they're traumatized in their real life. Then they get to Narnia where there's another war on. I like that we got to see their efforts pay off and we got to see them live a good, full, happy life. And that's really, you know, what their mother's sacrifice was meant for putting them on that train was to get them out of there so that they could survive. So now we don't only get to see them survive. They're thriving in Narnia, but I do like that. They go back. I love that. Lucy has that recollection of what Mr. Tumnus said with spare. Um, that's, that's a big beat in the book. Um, so I like that they didn't just cut out of the movie, leaving them in Narnia. I like that they go back to face reality, but we do see that things got better for them. Try me. I love that Ugh. that's the last bit of dialogue in the film. So good. Let's move on and talk about our cast and characters, starting with William Mosley, who plays Peter. Uh, eldest son, I really love this character for his leadership, mostly for how he defends Lucy. Like, to me, like I, I think it's understated how important that scene is when he forces Edmund to apologize, when he stands up for her and and sort of saves her reputation, so to speak. Um, it, it's, it's the most important character build for him in the entire movie. Absolutely. We haven't really talked enough about Peter and the conviction he has to protect his siblings. And it's not just for the sake of keeping a promise to his mother. He really does want to look out for them. Um, so I love that for his character. Um, I think that he has one of the more full character arcs in this film because 
you know, ultimately he tells Edmund to take the girls and leave. And at this point, they even for all they've been through, they obviously still very much remember the wardrobe and he knows that they have a way out. But he feels this responsibility to Narnia now to stay and to help Aslan and to resolve this problem. So I think that um, he's a very understated character. The only thing that I bump on a little bit here, he does not look very convincing wielding this sword. And I remember from watching Prop Culture, it was heavy. And when he re-examined it as an adult, I think he said as much that it was much easier to lift now because the prop was so heavy. But um, between that, when he was clearly struggling with the fighting scenes, um, and I don't know if this was his choice or if it was bad direction, the fighting wasn't very convincing either because he announced every swing with a grunt. So it's like the witch is going to know you're coming if you're like, yeah, every single time you yeah. move. Um, so I think that could have been done a bit better. I'm trying not to be too harsh because these are child actors that we're dealing with, but I feel like he was maybe old enough to tighten it up in those scenes. Georgie Henley plays Lucy scene stealer everything that she does she's unbelievable in this movie she is the film she is so cute she gives the performance the perfect amount of wonder and awe that's needed for this character um i believe how much she believes she's absolutely fantastic skander canes plays edmund I think he played the character that was written for him. And I mean that to say I don't like this character at all, and it is no fault of the actor. Yeah. Um, I think that the character was definitely punched up for the book as far as being unlikable. Or, I'm sorry, punched up for the film as far as being unlikable because I don't recall him being this way in the book. Um from what I remember, I feel like in the book he gets he's more duped by the White Witch than wanting to serve her. Yes. Um, but here, like I said, I was just having so much trouble rooting for him that in the end, I, I kind of wish Lucy hadn't saved him. Anna Popplewell plays Susan. I like her as an olive branch to Lucy because while Peter defends Lucy and looks out for her, it's very clear that Lucy's better relationship is with Susan. It's going to be with her older sister, which makes a lot of sense. I, I like the role that she plays with 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 Lucy, and I think that, you know, through and through, she's a good counterpoint to Peter. I like how Susan is both written and acted here because there's this subtle nurturing role that she has. I mean, I think with Lucy, it's more overt, But Susan is backing up Lucy and protecting her. But by the time they get to Aslan, she is fully ready to step into this role of leadership with Narnia. And I think, um, you know, it does sort of give that that quality of being like the mother of Narnia. Um, So I like that it was subtle up until that point and and I totally believe that she was ready for it when her time came James McAvoy as Mr. Tumnus 
he's good in everything, so he's good in this. I think this is one of his best roles. I mean, he's absolutely brilliant in the M. Night Shyamalan series um, because it requires so much of him to play all of the... um, The movie is split. Yeah. It requires so much for him to um, play all of those different split personalities. So if you've not seen it, I can't recommend that movie enough. And you can watch it as a standalone. You don't have to watch the whole trilogy. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. That's probably my favorite role, but I think this is his best. He's just got this little twinkle in his eye. Um and, and he just totally makes me believe in the magic of Narnia. I think he's absolutely incredible. And I think his makeup is wonderful, Sean. Tilda Swinton plays the White Witch. Um, I said it before. I think she slays. I think she's one of the best characters in this film. I think she's one of the best talents in this film. Um, she's perfectly unhinged in all of the right ways, but when she is being manipulative, she just does it so naturally. I absolutely love her in this, love her in this movie. She's incredible. I mean, as much as she just scares me sometimes, that doesn't take away from the fact that I do believe that she's a brilliant actress. Um, and this is no different. I, I, I think this is some of her best work too, because there's that subtlety in her performance of you know she obviously is going to do horrible things but she is like so calm cool collected the entire time she knows she's going after what she wants she knows that she's going to get it by force or by threatening people and exploiting people however she's going to do it but this is one of those truly great villain performances where they seem to ha- where she seems to just be so together and that's why she's so calm is because she doesn't care what hiccups are in her way she knows she's going to get what she wants and that allows her to just take it all in and move through it i also think that tilda swinton had some of the best fighting technique in this film and because she brings that calmness to the fight too Um, you know, she doesn't look like she's broken a sweat. She's just, you know, wielding these swords. She's got two of them. She's totally convincing. I think she mastered all of her stunt work. Um, and I think she did most of it too, because you don't see them cut to a lot of wides when she's fighting. So that was super impressive. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about her character too, because I feel like the white witch is one of the most memorable parts of the book. Um, because other than Mr. Tumnus, she is one of the earliest people that we meet in Narnia. So you've got the good in Mr. Tumnus, the bad in her. Um, she's just as questionable as Mr. Tumnus is at first, because where he's good and does something bad, she's bad and seems to be good. Um, so I think that comes through very clearly here. I think they kept that true to the source material. Um, But I love how they also played with this character as far as the wardrobe um, because her costumes are incredible. Like when we see her, obviously she looks like Elsa's evil twin and she looks amazing. But as Narnia thaws, so does she. And her costume reflects each of the seasons or what's happening in the story because by the time she kills Aslan, she's got that giant fur piece on her neck. Um... So it makes her seem even more creepy, like she's going to, because this is before they shave him. Um, So 
I buy the fact that she's not only going to kill him, but she's going to like display her trophy too. Uh, and it makes her just that much more creepy. Yeah. Let's talk about Aslan played by Liam Neeson. Uh, he was not the original actor cast for this role, but the original actor wasn't working out and he sought them out. He wanted this role. Well, he does have a very specific set of skills that yes. are needed for this role. Aslan will find you and he will kill you. Um, I think Liam Neeson was great because he's another one. You drop him in any movie and he's fine. I mean, he could play the Easter Bunny for God's sake. But I just feel like we didn't get enough time with him. Is it just me or was Aslan a bigger part of the book than he was in the film? That I don't remember, but I'm going to disagree with you because I think that in order for these kids to step up into these roles and believe that they are going to be to be able to be leaders themselves, you can't have Aslan holding their hand the entire time. I mean, part of it, I will give you that. I think we do spend too much time with Aslan on the slab, taking him out of the action, but I don't think you could have given him that much more dialogue to help these kids along. Fair enough. Um, final thoughts on the Chronicles of Narnia the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'll let you go first. I really enjoyed this revisit. Um, I liked it when I had first seen it. Like I said, I, I think a lot of that has to do with my history with the book and the animation, but I did like this enough on its own. And there's really no reason that I don't go back and rewatch it a lot because it is very charming. I think my reason for not going back is because the other two are going to get really bad from what I remember. Um, because I did see uh, the second one in theaters in college with a bunch of friends. And as you can imagine, a bunch of film school kids ripping apart bad CGI, you know, we had a holiday with that one. Um, so I think because of the downward spiral, um, I haven't wanted to revisit it as much, but I should. I should go back and just watch the first one. I think it will probably become part of my regular rotation around the holidays because um, this is a really charming movie um, and there's a lot to it. Um, I think the performances are all absolutely fantastic. I think, if anything, that's what should keep people coming back to it. Um but I'm happy we we finally sat down and reviewed it and, um, you know, gave it the full treatment. And, you know, I'm I'm kind of sorry this fell by the wayside. If you had 15 to 25 minutes trimmed off the movie. And if you I'm not even asking for good. Just give me passable CGI. If they had accomplished both of those things, I'd be giving this movie perfect marks. Wow. That's how good I think most of this movie is let me say no that's how good the performances are yes that's how good the costumes are that's how good the props are it's that close yeah um i'm i'm not all that excited to watch the other two because of how it's been explained to me um as to how bad the CGI and, and the films too. My understanding that by the time we get to the third film, it's not even close to a representation of what the book was. So they can really go off the rails. Um, 
so I, like, I, I'm not really looking forward to it, but I'm in it. So, um, this at least was a pleasant surprise. It's definitely one that I will go back and revisit probably once around the holidays. The Santa Claus, I'll watch that eight days a week. In this, July. Th- yeah, this'll be one that I watch once and I'll be done with it. But it'll be fun to revisit around the holidays. But we were interested in knowing what you have to say about the Chronicles of Narnia. I want to mac on some Magnolia cupcakes after this conversation. <laughs> if you know, you know. You can let us know on X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip, just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly check for discounts to make sure we are guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was perfect. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio, or you can email me directly, monorealradio at gmail.com. So we have an event calendar that got released for Disneyland for 2024. So if you are planning a trip out there after you get in touch with Jackie, maybe you do that based upon the events calendar because they have a lot coming this year. They're obviously doing more with Run Disney. They're doing a Halloween race this year that I know people are very excited about, but they finally have given us some hard dates for some of their tried and true classic weekends or classic events. Lunar New Year is going to run from January 23rd through February 18th. Uh, Celebrate Gospel. They're getting two dates, February 17th and the 24th. Their Food and Wine Festival at Disney's California Adventures, this is going to run for a while, March 1st through April 22nd. Star Wars Season of the Force, April 5th through June 2nd. Pixar Fest is going to run. You ready for this? April 26th through August 4th. Wow. But see, that makes sense, though, because you have Pixar Pier at DCA. Like, you should really embrace the Pixar over there. And what I'm really excited about, too, uh, people have been buzzing about it on social media, is that they're going to incorporate Turning Red into the parade. So you're going to have a float with, uh, I believe, Fortown and May but in panda form, I think that's going to be really cool. Yeah, the Better Together Parade. Uh, August 23rd through October 31st is going to be Halloween time. August 23rd through November 2nd, you are going to have a celebration of Coco, Plaza de la Familia. Um, and then beginning on November 15th, the holidays begin here. So that is the calendar for all of the events that are coming out to Disneyland. What's interesting to me is that Disney has been giving us hard dates, not so much for rides and movies that have been announced, but for park-related festivals. 
and promotions. I feel like they've started announcing things earlier and earlier. And I'm kind of looking at it through the lens of they want you to book your travel earlier and earlier. Because where they used to release the promos quarterly, they're doing it six months out now so that you can start booking your hotels. Um, So I think that that's interesting that they've released this entire slate for Disneyland. Because especially with... um, the renovation uh, with the Pixar Hotel now, um, you know, I think they're trying to gauge their attendance a little bit. Speaking on Pixar, 2024 is going to see a handful of Pixar films finally get theatrical releases because uh, there was that little strike that happened. So everybody's release dates have been pushed back. Luca, Soul, and Turning Red are all going to see theatrical releases in 2024 they were well documented as going straight to disney plus and it angered a lot of people they're finally getting a theatrical release i mean it's nice i think it's too little too late i i understand that disney is trying to drum up a little bit of box office but unless you're doing one of those you know like amc does these programs right during school breaks come see a five dollar movie on a tuesday I don't see somebody going and dropping, if you're a family of four, anywhere between 50 and 75 bucks to go see a movie that you can watch right now on Disney+. Plus. I go back and forth on this issue a lot because at the time, what discouraged me the most that they just put these films straight to the streamer was that the cast and crew didn't get their due of a theatrical release and that they didn't get to celebrate this film and it's released to the public the way that all other films do. So that was really upsetting to witness. Um, And I am glad that these films are getting their due in that regard. And they will finally, they, they will finally be viewed the way that they were meant to be seen on the big screen. They deserve it. The cast and crew deserves that. Um, But my gut reaction when I saw the headline was like, well, look how the tables have turned. And now all of a sudden we need Pixar films. So I agree with you. It's too little too late. But I mean, at the same time, better late than never. But at least for the cast and crew, you're you're with the cast and crew in mind. Yes. But now it's kind of like, well, yes, this is your way of this is your knee jerk reaction to the strike. And oh, look, you need these films now. We are interested in knowing what you have to say about this week's news. You can let us know on X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. We are also on threads and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. Be sure to following us. Uh, be sure to follow us on all of the social. And for links to everything related to the show, it's going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.